You're going to love this. Just love it. I don't know. I don't know if you will. Not today. Well, maybe. You'll love half of it. How's that? I just won't tell you which half. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the Stuck in the Middle with you from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster. Way out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes, and streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and, of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another action-packed, thrilling adventure that we call the Bradcast. Coming up very momentarily, it was a reported bloodbath today for public sector unions in the U.S. Supreme Court, yeah, that's what I was talking about in the opening there, the part you won't like. Uh, constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser was at the oral hearings this morning for Friedrichs v. California Teachers Association, the latest uh, case in which, in which right-wingers are frankly hoping to kill, to cut off the funding at the knees to public sector unions, and of course they're not going to be stopping at public sector unions. They also want uh, to destroy private sector unions. Anything they can do, because right now they know that uh, that unions, whether it's public sector or pri- private sector, are uh, the, the largest sort of group support, sort of corporate support for Democrats, and uh, they don't like that. They would like to see uh, corporations and their dark money, private corporations, the Koch brothers and friends, have complete control over the political process. And they're well on their way there. This time it looks like they may succeed, at least when it comes to cutting off the, uh, the funding for public sector unions, at least a big funding source for public sector unions. It did not go well, reportedly, in the Supreme Court today. So we will get into all of that and into those details and explain that case, exactly what it means, uh, with Ian Milheiser of, uh, of Think Progress Justice shortly. Uh, joining us as ever, uh, hi, I should say, hi, Desi Doyen, Hello. our producer, my uh, co-host on the Green News Report. Um, 
Desi Doyen, did you get your uh, did you get your lottery tickets? This, I, this I, you know what? I actually never play yeah. the lottery, uh-huh. but I just I couldn't I couldn't help it. I could not stop myself. I had to go in and join in on the fun, and it was fun. It really was fun. Everybody at the gas station where I bought it, yeah. they were all laughing. Well, so it, in that respect, you know, everybody was. You're getting saying a kick that out just to make up for the fact that you bought those, and you know, I'm going to criticize you for buying them, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm glad you had fun, and I did. I hope you win. Me Obviously, too. I hope you end. Well, it's got. It looks like it's going to be this coming week. Something like one point, th- at least one point three billion dollars. I just say it's uh, stupid. Why? Because did you buy uh, any uh, last week, last month, last no. year? No. <laughs> I don't usually play. See, and that's why I say it's so stupid because people run out and they buy these things. Oh, it's one point three billion, or they oh, it's three hundred million. I'm going to buy. Well, last week, you know, it was twenty million. What you didn't want twenty million? That's that was not no good. good not nearly. I know. I never understand that. If you're going to play, play. But to go out and you know when when the jackpot gets you know to a couple hundred million or something instead of. I don't know. I, I would be just as happy winning when it was, oh, I don't know, 10, bi- 10 million. Oh, this is true. It's Five just, million. This is how it floats understand. up to my All awareness. Right. Yeah. So that's why. Right. Anyway. Your awareness is floating. Anyway, good <laughs> luck on that. I hope it, uh, hope it comes through. And Me then too. And then uh, you'll never hear from uh, either of us again. We'll take that money, <laughs> run out to Hawaii, move off. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, okay. Um, uh, some new polls. Uh, that I want to get to here because we don't, you know, we don't often uh, cover the horse race the way everybody else in the media do. Um, but there are a couple of points that I want to get to in these new polls because we had a bunch of new polls out uh, over the last, uh, over the weekend, over the past few days. Some of these polls, the first, uh, the first polls to come out for the year. Uh, and we are now just weeks away from uh, voting beginning, actually, in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and elsewhere. Well, just before the first of the year, we talked about a new poll that was out from Quinnipiac showing that in a hypothetical matchup uh, between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, she beats Donald Trump by seven points. She trounces him 47 to 40. Well, that's fine. But Bernie Sanders absolutely destroys Donald Trump, according to Quinnipiac, right before the end of the year, by almost twice the margin that Hillary Clinton does, 51 to 38 percent. That's 13 points. Hillary beats him by seven. Bernie beats him by 13 nationally. That was a a national poll. And of course, we don't. uh, We don't vote. We don't we don't have national elections. We have state by state elections. Uh, but it is notable because when I talk to people about uh, I talk to a lot of people who say they like Bernie Sanders, but they're concerned that he can't beat whether it's Donald Trump or anybody else, any of the other uh, Republicans running. They think that Hillary Clinton has a better chance of beating the Republicans. Uh, and yet in these head to head matchups, at least nationally, Bernie uh, Sanders does way better than Hillary Clinton. And this is a point that does not seem to be getting out there for some reason. That was just before the end of the year. That was nationally. Now we have uh, we have some more data, this time locally in Iowa and in New Hampshire, in the two states that I think it's fair to say have been paying the closest attention uh, uh, to the race, to the presidential race, because they're the first ones to, to come up for voting. They have been getting flooded with advertisements from all of the candidates. 
So they've, you know, and all the candidates have been spending a lot of time there for the last God knows how long, at least a year. So Iowa and New Hampshire, they know as well or better than anyone and in the country in this point, the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire know what it is that these uh, that these candidates are offering. Well, Let's look at what the folks in Iowa and New Hampshire think. Brand new NBC News uh, Wall Street Journal Marist polls out over the weekend. Uh, they, they have now uh, they are now measuring first. Uh, this is the first time that this poll has measured likely voters in those states. Up until now, they've just been doing general. Who would you support? Blah, blah, blah. Now they're actually looking at people who are planning to go to the polls. OK. In those polls in Iowa, Hillary Clinton is now just uh, just has a three point lead over Bernie Sanders, 48, uh, 48 to 45. Martin O'Malley gets five percent. But where Bernie Sanders had been beating uh, Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, but she was, you know, had a pretty good grasp of Iowa. Now it's becoming a real horse race in Iowa with Hillary up just over three points over Bernie Sanders in Iowa. In New Hampshire, Sanders is ahead of Clinton by four points, according to this poll, among likely voters, 50 to 46 percent. That, too, is within uh, the margin of error of plus minus 4.8 percentage points. O'Malley has just one percent. So neck and neck, in truth, in both of those frontrunner states for uh, Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. However, when it comes to uh, Clinton versus the Republicans or Sanders versus the Republicans, who she might face in uh, potential and or who he might face in potential head-to-head matchups, Clinton currently in Iowa, Hillary Clinton leads Donald Trump by eight points among registered voters. Well, that's pretty good. But Bernie Sanders is ahead of him by 13 points. So uh, that echoes, that's in Iowa, that echoes the, the Quinnipiac poll before the end of the year showing that, uh, that uh, they both beat Trump, but Sanders does so by twice the margin that Hillary Clinton does. What about Cruz uh, versus Clinton and Sanders? Well, Cruz beats Hillary Clinton by four points, but Sanders beats Cruz by five points. So uh, he Sanders essentially does nine points better than Hillary Clinton against Ted Cruz. What about Marco Rubio? He is up five points over Hillary Clinton. Again, this is Iowa we're focusing on right now, just on Iowa. Marco Rubio is up five points over Clinton in Iowa, and yet he's tied with Bernie Sanders in Iowa. So in all cases, Bernie Sanders does uh, better than Hillary Clinton against against uh, at least those three Republican frontrunners. What about in New Hampshire? In New Hampshire, Clinton is ahead of Trump by just one point. Sanders tops him in New Hampshire, tops Donald Trump by 19 points. 19 points in New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump, according to NBC News Wall Street poll. Um Cruz beats Clinton in New Hampshire by four points, whereas Sanders leads him by another 19 points. Bernie Sanders apparently is wildly popular when compared to Republicans in New Hampshire. And uh, Marco Rubio, uh, Marco Rubio beats Hillary Clinton 
in New Hampshire by 12 points. Kind wow. of amazing, yeah. But Sanders, on the other hand, leads Marco Rubio in New Hampshire by nine points. So uh, Sanders absolutely cleans up against uh, the, uh, the at least these three Republican frontrunners in New Hampshire, uh, as well as uh, in Iowa, doing better. Uh, this is the electability question I think we're going to hear more and more about. You know, yeah, Bernie is swell, but is he electable? Hillary Clinton is more electable. This suggests that Bernie Sanders is more electable, at least in these two states, and according to some of those earlier polls, nationally. Um, the uh, NBC News Wall Street uh, Journal goes on to say that the primary reason why Sanders uh, does better in general election matchups is due to his stronger performance with independent voters. And that may be. But the point of the matter is these are voters in New Hampshire and in Iowa who uh, who have been paying closer, arguably, arguably paying closer attention to the elections than anyone else in the country as far as what these uh, what these candidates actually stand for. And by the way, in uh, recent uh, reporting from Politico in the Nevada caucus, where Hillary Clinton had been doing very, very well over Bernie Sanders, uh, suddenly they say she, uh, Bernie Sanders is, quote, suddenly looking like he's in play or suddenly looking like Nevada is in play for Sanders, quote, opening up another unexpected early state front for Bernie Sanders. Well, what's interesting about this to me is that we don't hear, at least I haven't heard, Mm -hmm. a lot of discussion in the corporate media about the electability of Trump. I don't really hear them talking about that, and yet they focus a great deal, it seems, on the electability of well, Bernie Sanders. Well, you mean on the lack of uh, electability lack of elect- for Bernie Sanders, but not on the lack of yeah, electability is, for Trump. Yeah. This concerns me that there yeah. there is developing a media narrative about the elect- electability of Bernie Sanders, because they're already portraying him in a lot of ways as being, oh, a fringe, senile, mm-hmm. crazy old guy, <laughs> well, cranky old guy who's now running for president, and that's a narrative that I think... Uh, has sunk previous Democratic well, nominees you know like Howard Dean, Al Gore. The media gets against them and, dr- and creates yep. their storyline about them. And then that is what ends up being in the minds of most voters. So well, I, I have a concern about that. Well, you should be concerned because that poll that I cited, the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll in New Hampshire, was not the only poll uh, showing the same thing in New Hampshire. Also, PPP's newest New Hampshire poll finds both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders leading the Republican field in the state, although Sanders does an average of nine points better than Clinton in those general election matchups. So this is, uh, again, and this echoes this totally separate, totally independent poll that you have with the uh, uh, New Hampshire uh, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll. You're seeing the same thing echoed now in New Hampshire in this PPP poll. Sanders is shown as the only candidate of all of the candidates, Republican and Democratic, who has a net favorable rating among the electorate in that state. And it's a very positive rating. They say 55% of voters see him positively to only 35% who have negative opinions uh, about Bernie Sanders. Sanders leads the entire GOP field by double digits, 12 points over Bush, 14 points over Rubio, 19 points over Carson, 20 points over both Trump and Cruz. Uh, and so you might say, well, that's because New Hampshire, it's it's such a liberal state, of course. Well, not really. The governor's race, they got a governor's race there this year. That one is neck and neck. 42 percent uh, for the Democrat, 42 percent for the Republican if the election was held today. 
Uh, same thing in the, uh, I believe it's a senatorial race, uh, where also neck and neck. So, uh, but in, in both cases, we we're finding the same thing. These polls match up with each other, showing that Bernie Sanders is far more electable, if there is such a word, uh, than Hillary Clinton, at least in New Hampshire, at least apparently in Iowa, and at least apparently nationally. But as you point out, Desi Doyen, the uh, the national media is not covering it, are not covering it in that way. They're they're covering it very differently, as if she is the uh, as if Hillary is the presumed nominee, as if uh, the idea that uh, Bernie Sanders could win the nomination, much less the presidency, is is just crazy. And that's what voters are hearing. A lot of voters are hearing it that way. Uh, so that's why I want to bring this out. Uh, we got some other numbers. Maybe we'll get to it later concerning the Republicans in uh, in New Hampshire and some kind of crazy numbers there that that don't make a lot of sense. Yes, uh, short headline: Donald Trump is still winning by a mile, uh, but the people uh, below him trying to take him down those uh, those names keep changing a lot, a lot, including Jeb Bush. He's not out of it. Including John Kasich who seems to be doing particularly well in several different polls. So maybe we'll get to some of that later. As I say, we don't cover uh, the horse race stuff that closely here, uh, preferring to cover instead what the horses leave behind on the track and the track conditions under which people will be voting. But you can't figure out uh, if these results that we're going to be given are correct unless we have some idea what the pre-election polls say, since they don't let us count, you know, the actual votes and we have to just rely on whatever the computers tell us. So I did want to get some of that out there. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Ian Milheiser and much more right here on the broadcast. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Well, it was it was a tough day, reportedly, for union rights on, on Monday morning in the U.S. Supreme Court. Specifically, a tough day for public sector unions, which, like private sector unions, rely on union dues to exist. Uh, often, uh, they rely on that dues, those agency fees, even from non-union employees who enjoy all the same benefits of working in a union shop that they need in order to keep operating. As it turns out, unions are also amongst the largest corporate supporters to Democrats and Republicans, as you know, have for years been working to both break those unions and particularly cripple their ability to participate in the political process. Even while anti-union groups and corporations spend more and more money on elections, now far outpacing union activity. The case that came before the Supreme Court on Monday for oral arguments, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, could well serve to undercut and potentially 
even bankrupt unions in the public sector. It offers a First Amendment argument that non-union employees in union shops should not have to pay union dues as allowed by federal law. Uh, that forcing such non-union employees to have to pay fees to unions who are required to negotiate on their behalf as well, by the way, they are required to do so, even if they're non-union. Um, that argument from plaintiffs is that uh, is that requiring them to pay those fees violates the political free speech rights of those non-union employees who may not agree with the advocacy positions of the union itself. Well, According to Ian Milheiser at Think Progress, uh, things did not go well for public unions in the oral argument before the court on Monday. In fact, they got brutalized, according to Milheiser. Here now to talk about the case and about the oral arguments is Ian Milheiser. He's a constitutional law expert, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund, editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, U.S. News and World Report, Slate, Guardian, everywhere else. Uh, and his first book, published just last year, is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for joining us. You were in, uh, you were in court on Monday morning uh, t t during the oral arguments of this case? I, I was, and, you know, going in, I don't think that the unions had much to be optimistic about. Mm -hmm. The court had signaled on two previous occasions that they were eager to see a challenge like this that would sort of help defund a lot of, of public sector unions, and those expectations uh you know it, what they were signaling that they were likely to do. They indeed seem very likely to do it, based oh. on what I saw today in in the Supreme Court. Oh, brother! All right. Well, what is? Uh, I, I I quickly uh, summarized the Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, or at least tried to. Uh, give me an idea exactly what this case is, where it comes from, and and if I uh, categor categorized it even closely to correctly there. Yeah, I mean it's basically a case about whether or not people can get something for nothing. Um, so unions, as you said, are required to negotiate on behalf of everyone in a bargaining unit, regardless of whether any individual worker joins the union. Mm -hmm. um, and the benefits that the unions get at the bargaining table can be really significant. The you know, workers in unionized shops, on average, uh, receive about 12% more pay. Um, than workers in non-unionized shops, so, and, and that includes that includes non-union workers in those unionized shops, right? They benefit from the negotiation that the uh, th that the union does on behalf of the union workers. Those benefits also accrue to the non-union workers in that same shop. Is that do I understand that correctly? The, th that's exactly right. So if if uh, if I work in a unionized shop, on average, I'll make twelve percent more money than someone do the exact same job down the street at a non-union shop, um, and that is true even if I don't belong to the union myself. Um, so the issue here is that it creates what's called a free rider problem. Uh, you know, if 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 I, if I get to choose, if I get something, whether I pay for it or not. A whole lot of people are going to say, well, why would I? Why would I pay for this when I get it for free? Right. Um, so the unions have historically charged what are called agency fees, and, and agency fees just require every non-member in the bargaining unit mm -hmm. 
to reimburse the union for their fair share of uh, the cost of bargaining on their behalf. Um, you know, bargaining can it can involve lawyers, it can involve a lot of technical experts. It can be a really expensive endeavor. And so the union needs to pay for it somehow, mm-hmm. and this just says that everyone who benefits from the bargaining uh, should pay their fair share for, for what they receive. And the reason they're allowed to do that in the first place, that uh, they're allowed to impose those agency fees on the non-union members, is because they enjoy this, ultimately the same privileges that, uh, that the union workers got, right? Right. I mean, it, well, it's because it's in the contract. It's because there's a contract that's negotiated between the employer and the union. The contract governs every single employee in the bargaining unit, again, including the non-union members. And one clause of that contract will say that people will get a certain amount of wages, Mm -hmm. and that clause applies to everyone equally. And then another clause will say that everyone's got to pay their fair share of the cost of bargaining. And that clause also applies to everyone equally. Uh, you know, so the concept here is that there, there is just it's simple. There's one contract. It, it governs the entire uh, it covers the entire bargaining unit and you don't get to if you're a member of the bargaining unit pick and choose which provisions of your employment contract you want to follow. But now this argument from plaintiffs in Friedrichs versus California teachers uh, heard today in the Supreme Court this now says that uh, those people that this violates the rights of non-union members, uh, the the free speech, the First Amendment free speech rights, because they're giving money to an organization that, even though they're uh, negotiating on their behalf, they also may be putting money into the political system for things that those people do not agree with, and that this is compelling them, uh, this is compelling speech, and thus a violation of their First Amendment rights to free speech, to disagree? Yeah, I mean, that that's their argument. So, mm-hmm. so their argument is that the First Amendment doesn't just say that the government can't stop you from saying things. Mm-hmm. The government also can't compel you to speak. Okay. So, like, under ordinary circumstances, if the government came up to me and said, um, you know, and they said, you, you know, you have mm-hmm. to go out there and tell everyone that you want Donald Trump to be president. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that. The government can't make me do it. Right. Um, and so the analogy here is that if the government were to take my money uh, or, you know, or make me, you know, follow an agreement mm-hmm. where I'm funding an organization that's going to go out and say Donald Trump for president, that would also be. Um, you know that that would also be unconstitutional. The reason why that there are a number of reasons why that argument doesn't quite work, but the most important one is that the Supreme Court has consistently said that the First Amendment is less strong when the government is dealing with its own employees, um, and that you know that just makes sense. I mean, when, when I was a school teacher. Uh, there were some lessons that my principal wanted me to teach, and I didn't want to teach them. And she ordered me to teach them, so I taught them, because she was the boss, mm-hmm. I was an employee, and that's how things work in a... Uh, uh, that, 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 that's, that's how things work in, in, in a job environment. You couldn't have a job environment mm-hmm. where the employer didn't have some ability to control the speech of the employees. And so... Generally, the First Amendment is least robust when we're talking about speech by government employees 
regarding the nature of the uh, of the job itself, mm-hmm. or the, you know, the job conditions themselves. Um, and so, so, so they are allowed to compel certain things because they are running uh, not a business per se, but they're they're trying to run an agency, and so they are allowed to compel an employee to do this or to do that. Am I understanding you correctly on that? I, I mean, that's that's most of it. I, I mean, okay. the idea. I mean, the idea here is that the government's allowed to manage its employees, mm-hmm. and so if the government says, "Look, like we have a collective bargaining agreement, we negotiate with one union. We're not going to negotiate with, you know, we're not going to have this multifaceted negotiating process where we negotiate with the union, but then all these objectors come along and we have to deal with, with them as well. Mm-hmm. We want to say that." Because this union is serving all of y'all, everyone has to contribute their fair share. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, okay. uh, ordinary job management. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so the, the, what the court has said in the past is that the First Amendment just isn't as strong in that context. Okay. Um, now, unfortunately for, you know, people who care about unions, uh, the justice didn't seem to buy that argument. Uh, they, it was pretty clear today that there were five votes that are ready to uh, th- th- that are well ready to strike down these agency fee agreements, and that's going to be not great for um, you know for, for the future of many of many public sector unions. Yeah, it it could really harm them because people look at this and say, well, why should I pay union dues? I'm going to get the same privileges, benefits, and everything else if I don't join the union and I won't have to pay any uh, dues or agency fees at all. Then everyone decides, okay, I'm not going to pay any money to the unions. The unions go bankrupt. It's kind of amazing. Uh, I, I, I suppose I shouldn't be amazed by this. But at the same time, if they're allowing... Uh, if the court ends up allowing these non-union workers to not have to pay agency fees, uh, does the law change so that uh, the the benefits that the unions have argued for, that have, have obtained from the employers, don't have to be given to the non-union workers? So there's actually, I mean, will there be any incentive for anyone to join a union if they're going to get the benefits anyway? Or can the law be changed so to say, hey, you're non-union, you chose not to join this union. You ain't going to make as much per hour. You ain't going to have as much, uh, you know, vacation time and, and health benefits and everything else. Is that allowed legally? Well, I, I don't think that's a desirable outcome. I mean, right no. now the answer to that is no. But, like, that's, you know, there are a lot of conservative groups that would love that outcome. Because, like, here's the thing about, I mean, the, the, the term for what we're describing is exclusive representation. Mm-hmm. So, if you are in a unionized shop, and, I, and you know, I'm a member of a union, uh, your union is the exclusive representative mm-hmm. for the workers in that shop. It's mm-hmm. the only organization that gets to, bar- that gets to bargain on your behalf at the, cle- at the collective bargaining table. It gets to bargain on any worker's mm-hmm. behalf in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is what happens if you start allowing people to peel off, and they won't be subject to the collective bargaining agreement, and they'll just get whatever side deal they're able to work out. Well, there's two problems for that. One is that's actually terrible for the employer, because the employer now, instead of having one one sit-down, mm-hmm. one conversation, where they have the collective bargaining agreement, they have that conversation, and then they know what things look like. They know what their budget looks like, you know, that everything's done. 
They instead have to have all of these disparate conversations, and they might have competing unions where two or three unions come in and organize a different group of workers, and the unions compete amongst themselves for, for members in that shop. So it becomes very difficult for the employer to manage. It's also very bad for the employees because unions function on solidarity. You know, they they, they mm-hmm. function on the idea that the reason why the union is powerful is because you have all the workers in it together, and together they're able to stand up to the employer. And if you begin to diminish the size of that bargaining pool, eventually it's small enough that the employer says, well, you know, y'all don't have, y'all really don't have that much to hold against us, you know, you... We're going to go do what we want. So in the edge, you you know, if you eliminate exclusive bargaining, you get worse deals for the employees. You create a huge burden for the employers because they might be suddenly having to negotiate with two or three different unions and a bunch of individuals on the side. Um, you know, it, it's just not a desirable outcome. So if this is not good for employees, this is not good for employers, who is this good for? Who is arguing in favor of this? Who are the plaintiffs in Friedrichs versus uh, California Teachers Association, as heard today, Ian Milheiser? Well, I mean, the, the plaintiffs are 10 teachers who claim that they have some some disagreements with uh, with their union. In some cases, they're very very idiosyncratic. There's one of them who wrote in the Wall Street Journal that one of his grievances is that he doesn't like that the union keeps keeps asking for more and more pay. So you know, if if, if you are the teacher who is mad that he, that he keeps getting bigger and bigger paychecks, <laughs> that you know that's the person they found who had who really? had grievances. Okay, but that, really, but he, <laughs> he, he he wrote that in the Wall Street Journal that he is upset. I mean, you know, yeah. what he said that he wanted the union to prioritize other things, right? But you know, that's his grievance. Is he thinks that the union is paying too much attention to getting him more money? Okay, well, he's one of the one of the plaintiffs, I guess, in this case, and and probably an outlier amongst uh, these people. There's a larger effort to undercut public sector uh, unions to to undercut right. all unions entirely but that's what I'm trying to but I'm trying to get at not uh, the specific plaintiff but who is pushing these cases because we have seen now there was a similar right. case that came before the court last year it was decided on narrow grounds now this could just undo it all this case if employer if this is not good for employers or employees who is pushing cases like this to right. the supreme court who wants to well, unwind these rights so this is the third in a series of cases that we're trying to get to this victory against unions. The first two were argued, I believe the first two, certainly the most recent one, were argued by a group called the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, which is, you know, a sort of inaptly named group that's really just a union-busting group. Right this to Work, one, which is, as our friend Tom Hartman calls it, I believe, Right to Work for Less is, right. is really what these are. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, you, you had a major anti-union group behind it before. This case was argued by an attorney named Michael Carvin, who's, you know, one of the leading rogues of the rogues gallery of conservative attorneys who show up over and over again asking the court to implement long-time conservative policy positions by judicial decree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the last time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we saw him arguing the King v. Burwell case, where um, you, you know, which was the case trying mm-hmm. to gut the Affordable Care Act. Right. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, this is. You know the the thing about 
the way a lot of these politically charged lawsuits work, is you just need one plaintiff who legitimately has standing to come into court. So you go out, if you really want to bring a case, you find someone with a really idiosyncratic belief, like this guy at the Wall Street Journal, who thinks who's really bad at his union that it's getting him too much money. Right. But and then you know you get a funder who has a conservative who's a conservative ideologue, and you get a lawyer who's a conservative ideologue, and then you show up in the Supreme Court. You hope that five justices will be conservative ideologues. And uh, apparently, according to your report today, uh, Ian Milheiser, after sitting through the oral uh, hearings, it sounds like they have found those five justices. It does sound like. Uh, this requirement is is in big trouble. Uh, but let me ask you, and I want to ask you specifically about the 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 uh, unlikely idea that Scalia might have saved the day here of all people. I want to talk about that in a second. But uh, one of the amicus briefs uh, that that you highlight here. Uh, it says that uh, that uh, for many state pension funds are managed by and invested in private companies, and the corporations in which the public pension plans invest may also they those companies engage in free speech. So, is right. it uh, similarly now? Can they gut the idea that I have to give to my pension because that goes to a private company that may argue politically against something that I believe in? Right, yeah, I mean, both of those things, it points to what I think is probably the biggest problem with the plaintiff's argument, is that it lacks what we lawyers call a limiting principle. You, 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 you mm-hmm. Like, the rule starts to make sense until you think of all the other consequences that flow from it. So one of those consequences is, you know, if their rule is that the government can't enter into an employment agreement that requires you to pay money to an institution that is engaged in political speech, mm-hmm. that if, I, if, if my employer has a pension plan, or if it has a 401k for that matter, mm-hmm. um, if it has some sort of retirement plan, and that retirement plan invests my money in companies that engage in political speech that I disagree with, mm-hmm. how does that not violate the rule that the plaintiffs are asking for in Friedrich. Exactly. How does it? Right. Did that come up today in the in the arguments? Oh, it didn't come up at all. I, I, I mean, you know, the conservatives weren't interested, were too interested in finding limits, and the liberals, for the most part, focused on other arguments. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weird consequences that flow from this rule. You know, the other one, and this is why people thought there was some hope for Scalia, uh, is the last time a case like this was before the Supreme Court, Scalia put put out this hypothetical that's, you know, really troubling under the plaintiff's theory. You know, let's say that you have a cop, and he thinks that the cops, um, you know, in his police department aren't paid enough. So he makes an appointment with the police commissioner, and he says, you need to give us all more money. And the commissioner says, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. And the cop comes back the next day and says, you need to give us more money. And, and, and the, the commissioner says, no, I, I, we're not going to do that. I've already told you my decision. And he comes back day after day bothering the commissioner, preventing the commissioner from getting his job done. And finally the commissioner turns to his secretary and says, I don't ever want to see this guy again. Mm-hmm. Don't, let him in, don't let him into my office. Now, if bargaining... If employer, if employer-employee bargaining over wages is a First Amendment concern, which is what the plaintiffs of Friedrich say it is, mm-hmm. then the First Amendment doesn't allow you to forbid someone from speaking. Mm. 
I so, so you can't so you can't say disallowing me to come into your office to bargain for wages. You are denying my free speech rights. Exactly, but you know if you think about how it, how any workplace has to work, that can't be the rule. I, I mean, yeah. my boss, if I if I keep bothering him over the same thing over and over again, he's going to discipline me. He may fire me, and he should. Right. Because, like, you know, we all have a job to do. Right. Well, which brings up uh, a point, a related point here. If this moves forward, if, in fact, this serves to gut the requirement that uh, non-union employees have to pay agency fees when they're working in a union shop, uh, what keeps that from spreading then uh, to public sector unions, is right. there a similar requirement in? I'm sorry, for uh, private sector unions, right. is there a similar requirement in private sector uh, that uh, requires non-union employees to also have to pay those uh, those fees? And can't well, so those the, be scrapped in the same fashion? The good news is that because this is a First Amendment case, um, the, the the Constitution is called the state action requirement. The mm-hmm. Constitution generally only applies to government action and not to private action. Okay, so. If the court says that something violates the First Amendment, they're just saying that the government can't do it. They're mm-hmm. not saying that private employers can't do it. That said, I mean, what we've seen from conservative, uh, conservative movement attorneys over the last seven or eight years is an extraordinary entrepreneurship. I mean, they, they've been really, really clever <laughs> in coming up with creative new ways yes. to, like, try to convince courts to implement their policy preferences. I mean, mean, that was what the lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act was. That's Uh what the next lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act was. That's what Hobby Lobby is. That's what this lawsuit is. I mean, they're they're very clever. Sometimes they use, they're asking to overrule cases. This one's actually asking to overrule an old case. But sometimes they just come up with a completely bonkers and novel and fun and new legal theory. Mm -hmm. And I have faith and the intelligence of these guys. I yep. mean, they are really, really smart, and you give them enough time, and they will come up with an argument. We'll get five votes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, but, and, like, but they'll have something additional now to use. Okay, the court decided such and such in the, uh, in the Friedrichs case. This applies also to private sector unions because of such and such. And 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 that is that sort of underscores that's the way these people are thinking. They are on a march to to you know roll back the uh, the the twenty first century the twentieth century uh, through these laws. And we we don't have enough uh, time here to cover this. I want to have you back in the future, Ian, because you you've discussed uh, you wrote I think uh, today at Think Progress. Uh, it's been a busy day for you there about uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott who is now proposing a series of constitutional amendments, I think nine in all, uh, that, as you described, would fundamentally alter our founding documents. I mean, these are amazing uh, things. He's calling for a, con- uh, 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 a set, what is it called? A, a, a Article 5 Constitutional Convention, prohibit Congress from regulating activity that occurs wholly within one state, allow a two-thirds majority of the states to override a U.S. Supreme Court decision, uh, some some unbelievably radical things that right. he is calling for, and I don't know that obviously these are you know not going to make it into the Constitution tomorrow. But all of this, I, I bring it up by way of underscoring, well, a 
had you on the show a few months ago, Ian Milheiser. We talked about the next president who may uh, end up having to uh, appoint up to four different Supreme Court justices, which would radically change the way the uh, the court leans, either left or right, I suppose, depending on who wins the presidential election this year. But it underscores the importance of the election, but underscores this long-term thinking that the folks on the right seem to have. They will come back again and again and again with these cases. They will put forward constitutional amendments. We don't seem to see anything like that on the progressive side. I mean, I remember back, you know, Newt Gingrich in the 1990s, the uh, contract for America. This is what we will give you if you put us into power. Democrats don't do that. Progressives don't seem to do that. Or do they? And I'm just, you know, not hearing about it. I'm missing it is somehow moving forward. And and I'm not hearing about it. Well, I I, I think it's unfair to say that, you know, neither the Democratic Party nor progressives in general have ideas for how they want to move things forward. I mean, you're hearing a lot of ideas from the candidates about about paid leave, about paid child care, about, uh, you know, I mean, the Affordable Care Act was a really big deal. Uh, you know, you're hearing ideas about how to address global warming. I mean, you are hearing robust proposals. Um, what I think the difference is between, you know, not just the two parties, but between conservatives and progressives in this country right now, is that progressives, ironically, are in a more conservative position. And that I think that liberals in the United States right now are are generally satisfied with, like, the structure of government we have and, like, want to make tweaks around the margins in order to you know, expand opportunities for people and expand certain programs, make sure everyone has health care and address certain concerns and so on and so forth. But I don't think they have a philosophic disagreement with the role of our federal government. I think conservatives right now increasingly believe that the last 80 years of American history are illegitimate. And, you know, they don't just want to make tweaks to certain programs. They believe that our society has started to go off the rails, and we have to fundamentally rethink what our government does. And so that's why you have this proposal. You brought up the Texas Governor Greg Abbott's uh, nine mm-hmm. wacky amendments. One of them says that he wants to prohibit the federal government from, quote, regulating activity that occurs wholly within one state. So here's a short list of activities that occur wholly within one state. Most people's jobs. Right. You know, most people don't cross state lines. Uh, so that would mean all federal labor law, anti-discrimination law, minimum wage law, things like that would all have to be thrown away. Um, if you ever eat in a restaurant, mm-hmm. most restaurants are not built on a state's border. Right. You know, most of the activity that goes on the restaurant happens entirely in one state. In the state. restaurant, right. <laughs> so under his theory, the ban on whites-only lunch counters is probably unconstitutional. Um, and I'll give you one more. Um, I'll give you one more example of okay. that fade, which is that during the Jim Crow era, it was very common for lynch mobs to be led by local law enforcement, by the sheriff's department, mm-hmm. by you know by official people who acted under the color of law. Mm-hmm. The lynching generally occurred entirely within one state, <laughs> right. and under his theory, it would be illegal for the federal government to punish it. Well, uh, um, so. 
Yeah, no, 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 I, yeah, and I understand, and I, you know, they're obviously, they are crazy, I think, yeah. uh, but they are laying out exactly what they want to do, and it seems to me that uh, Democrats and progressives, and, and Ian, I'm not trying to get you to, you know, defend uh, de either Democrats or progressives, um, but I am obser observing the fact that, you know, it, it seems like uh, Democrats are often on the defensive. They're trying to save, well, in this case, you know, save Obamacare, keep the uh, keep the uh, the right from rolling back union rights, rather than coming out and saying, "Put us in office. We will amend the Constitution to overturn Citizens United. Here is our amendment. Here is our plan. Put us in office. We will put single payer in. Uh, you know, pass a single payer health plan." Whether they can do it or not, presenting a reason to the voters to go out and vote for them. I often complain that they don't give reason. You know, they, they, they talk about why you shouldn't vote for the other guy, why the other guys are so bad. They don't often give a reason to vote for us. Here is what we will do. And the folks on the right seem to do that. They know what they're getting if they get their people in office and... It seems like progressives don't lay out, at least uh, establishment progressives, don't lay out those long-term plans to actually give reason to the voters, you know, to want to show up. I want to show up and vote, so I will get these things as promised. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Of course, what I think has happened is that Democrats are in the unfamiliar position of being the nation's conservative party. And I don't mean conservative in the sense that they are now to the right of the Republicans. Mm -hmm. I mean conservative in the sense that the Democrats have become the party that is conservative in that it wants to preserve the, the gains that we, that we already have. It mm -hmm. wants to preserve you know, the, the valuable things that already exist. Mm -hmm. I think that Republicans have become the party of transformative change. Yeah. And... You know, I, I, you know, the question that I think that, you know, if people are upset with that balance, you know, would it actually be desirable for the left in this country to call for change on the scale of what the right in this country is, is, yeah. is calling for? I, I mean, because, like, to go as far to the left as Greg Abbott has, has said we should go to the right you know, that probably looks a lot like communism. I mean, you have to go <laughs> well, really far to the left. Well, no, you, you no, you can have you can have single payer. You can say, you know what, let's stop uh, bombing our way out of these uh, the, these wars and start, uh, you know, funding schools and roads and everything else, both here and abroad. I think you can make those uh, progressive uh, uh, proposals without turning to communism. There's a lot of ground in between. I just don't feel that, uh, you know, Democrats come forward and, and say, this is what we will do. This, these are the programs we will institute if we come to power. Instead, they're stuck, as you say, sort of in a conservative position defending the status quo. And oddly enough, guys like uh, crazy right wing governor, Texas uh, Governor uh, Greg Abbott is proposing these well, is on a progressive saying we will progress to these things. I mean, it's everything is flipped here. It's very bizarre. And and I actually I didn't mean to go down that particular rabbit hole on, on this conversation, but it's it's worth discussing as we move, move forward, particularly as you wonder, well, 
why do we uh, need to worry about, uh, you know, are both parties the same? Well, not really, not when it comes to the Supreme Court and the effect that's going to have on on this nation. Ian, I, I got to get out and and uh, and you got to cure that cold. So I thank you for joining us uh, uh, today as ever and helping us to make sense out of this. Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert, editor of Think Progress, Justice and the author of the book Injustices. The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Thank you so much, as ever, Ian. All right. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. All right. A quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this. Well, the world lost David Bowie, incredibly enough, over the weekend, uh, as uh, AP describes him, the chameleon-like star who transformed the sound and the look of rock with his audacious creativity and sexual ambigu- sexually ambiguous makeup and costumes, died of cancer on Sunday. His birthday was Friday, the same day that he released his new album, Black Star. He was 69 years old. David Bowie released a music video on Friday along with the release of that album for the new song Lazarus. The video shows a frail David Bowie lying in bed singing the uh, singing the track's lyrics. The song begins with the line, Look up here, I'm in heaven. Did you see that uh, video yet, Desi Doyen? I have not. It's kind of heartbreaking. Uh, Bowie's music has also been uh, electrifying audiences this winter, says AP, in New York in the sold-out new off-Broadway musical Lazarus, based on music, uh, in part based on music from that new album Black Star, starring Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame, inspired by the 1963 science fiction novel The Man Who Fell to Earth. Very sad. Um... He will be uh, greatly missed, and I know that it's sort of sacrilege for David Bowie fans, perhaps for me to even say this, but uh, David Bowie, the movie Labyrinth, I'm just saying. <laughs> I loved him in that. I love that movie. You have to be of a certain I age know it's to got, have loved that yeah, movie. Yeah, I know. I know it's got Muppets in it, but I lo- it's kind of like uh, people who like that. Uh, who's that James Bond? Pierce Brosnan? People who like Pierce Brosnan as James Bond because they grew up with him. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's it. Anyway, uh, horrible, very sad. He had been fighting cancer for almost, uh, yeah, 18 months. And he didn't tell anybody. His hits include Space Oddity, Fame, Heroes, Let's Dance. He died surrounded by family, uh, according to a representative, early Monday morning. He will indeed be missed. Uh, okay, as we uh, as we went to the break here, uh, I, I got some uh, word in that uh, the Supreme Court 
Speaking of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court has rejected the final appeal for Governor Don Siegelman, uh, who had been uh, seeking a new trial, former Alabama governor. We have covered him on this show. Uh, he's been on this show many times uh, over the years. He is uh, s- still in jail in a federal uh, prison down in uh, Louisiana, completing his six-and-a-half-year sentence for something that 131, I think at last count, 131 former states' attorneys general, both Republicans and Democrats, have said is not a crime. These are uh, bribe, bribery-related charges. But he's being uh, charged for so he did not receive any enrichment from this supposed bribery. As I say, 131 uh, former state's attorneys general say this has never been a crime before until Don Siegelman was charged with it in, uh, frankly, this political cabal between Carl um, Rove and uh, the, the governor of uh, Alabama who, who unseated Don Siegelman. Uh, it's really a sham. To be frank, it's really a sham. And now uh, the Supreme Court has uh, rejected uh, Siegelman's uh, appeal for a new trial in that case in which the uh, in which the prosecutor, uh, her husband, was the campaign manager for uh, Siegelman's political opponent in Alabama. Uh, just continues to be outrageous uh, but with the uh, Supreme Court rejecting that final appeal now from Don Siegelman maybe perhaps maybe hopefully that will clear the way for uh, President Obama to commute uh, to commute the sentence or frankly to pardon Don Siegelman entirely what's taking you so long Mr. President uh, all right that's it for uh, today we'll be back with you once again tomorrow same Brad time same Brad channel until then my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen to our booking goddess Cynthia Cohn to my guest today Ian Milheiser of think progress if you missed any portion of the program you can download it as always at bradblog.com or over on iTunes uh, and if you like you can drop me email I'm Brad what am I I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com good job that's who i am and on the twitters and the facebooks i am simply the brad blog all right that's it we'll see you next time i'm brad friedman good luck world 